Welcome to Restored Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. Corey, it's good to be back in front of the microphone recording again. Um, our listeners probably know that as these come out, we try to release them once a week, every Monday or every Sunday rather. But uh, for us, it's been four or five weeks since we've <laughs> sat down and talked. Um, we've got some episodes recorded ahead just because of life and different things going on. So it's... Uh, I've gone back and kind of listened to the last couple episodes to because uh, I know we promised we'd pick up where we'd left off, but um, we are just two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity. Amen. And we welcome all those that want to join us into that conversation. Um, and it's good to remind ourselves of that. Um, the last time we were together, we were kind of finishing up multiple episodes where we had talked about the blood of Christ the power in the blood of Christ and um, um, grace and works. And I believe we said we were going to pick up, and you wanted to talk a little bit about Titus, the third chapter. But, Corey, just in a couple sentences, we got one comment from one of our listeners about grace. Um, how would you tell someone just a couple sentences, what is grace in, in referring to God? How would we sum that up? Oh, that's a great, great question, and it's one that the Scriptures give a lot of clarity on. Grace is the fact that God chose to step out of eternity into time to pay a price for us that we couldn't pay ourselves. He he did it without us asking for it. He did it without us working for it. He really did it without us even being aware that we needed a Savior and chose to make the only way possible happen that we could be with him again. And that is the act of grace. That is what it means to to be saved by grace, something that he did for us that we couldn't do ourselves. And at one point we talked about that parable of uh, of the debt, and that really opened my eyes, Corey, when, when you were talking about how great of a debt it was that that man was forgiven, that you know, even if he paid a million dollars a day and based on our money, just the interest he couldn't even pay off. And, um, and that as soon as he got out of prison, the person that owed him, he went and wanted to collect that debt. And so to me, that was a great, and I never heard that really attached to the grace thing, but that was a great picture of what the grace of God means. So God tells us to love one another and treat each other in certain ways. If I was forgiven by God for all of my sins, everything I've done wrong, then I need to treat other people that way. And his grace allows me to do that. But I think it's understanding his grace, understanding, and that takes a lifetime because you know, we could say we're forgiven a debt, but that doesn't have full weight on our heart until we understand, as we understand more and more how holy he is, and we realize how unholy we are, I think that grace and that forgiveness of our debts and our sins becomes more evident in our hearts, and then we're more um, likely to forgive other people for their shortcomings, right? And we want the, we want their best selves to come out. You know, uh there's a scripture that's given as a prophecy 
that someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess, you know, every, every good person, but every evil person too, if you think of the, the dictators through history or whoever. But the fact is we're all going to someday stand before the creator and for the first time see this infinite, uh, unfathomable father who created everything who was willing to step in and do something that right now, like you say, we, we can't imagine the magnitude of the debt. We, we don't know what it's like to owe, owe billions of dollars in debt. You know, none of us do, but we can understand a dollar worth of debt. And that's the magnitude of our sin against each other that God says, be willing to forgive that because that is so small in relation to what I did for you, the magnitude of your debt in, in eternity. But someday I think we're all going to have this aha moment where we're going to want to fall and bow down before him because we're going to realize he was so big, he was so powerful, and he stooped down to us, to our level, to pay this price that we couldn't pay. Uh, Nephi is asked an important question by the angel when he has his vision in First Nephi 3, and he says this, Knowest thou the condescension of God? And, and I remember years ago reading that and realizing I didn't really know what the word condescension meant. And so I got out a dictionary and looked looked up, comes from the word to condescend, which literally means to stoop down. That's that's what it ultimately means, to stoop down. And so when you read that scripture, using that understanding, the angel saying, do you know how God is going to stoop down for you, for for me? For all humanity, how God, capital G, is going to stoop down <laughs> to come into your lowly estate, your world, your realm. And, and that's the unfathomable thing that we hear about, we read about, but we don't necessarily appreciate. And so we have to kind of take it on God's suggestion that, hey, go ahead and forgive each other. Just take my word for it, because you have no idea what it, the magnitude of the price it took. It took me, it took the one who is infinite and eternal to pay this. And when we see him in his infinite greatness, his eternal greatness, all we will be able to do is fall on our faces and say, oh my gosh, <laughs> wow. And, and we trust him that he will, uh, he'll bring us to that point where, we, where he helps us understand that. That's very, very, not something that's just a mind thing, but it's, it takes full sway in our heart and persuades us as we keep our eyes on the cross to to treat each other differently and also to love him and to desire him yeah. ab above all things. So, you know, there's an interesting place in Isaiah where uh, it says, you know, when, when Isaiah, Isaiah writes about Satan will be bound and he'll be cast into a pit. He says, and they will walk by and look at him and say, this is the man that caused the nations to fall and tremble. And, and this, this guy right here, this was it. And it's like, it shows how easily our, our hearts were persuaded because we're going to consider him probably weak or insignificant, but yet he deceived nations and us too. Mm. And yet at the same time, we're going to be confronted with God who is so big and powerful and realize that the only way for us to be with him was for him to do something of infinite magnitude. And, and here was this deceiver who was of finite magnitude and what he accomplished, but yet the infinite, the all-powerful creator intervene for us uh, on our behalf and that's that's grace that is what it means and so um you know we talked about titus 3 um titus is an interesting small book in the new testament 
where I think it sums up some of this uh, concept really, really succinctly. Um, one, uh, Titus 2, and I think we shared this before, but uh, Titus 2.11 is, is a good start to that. Um, that it says, uh, For the grace of God which brings salvation to all men hath appeared. So the, the grace of God bringing salvation hath appeared. Who is that? Well, that's Jesus. And teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So, so Jesus taught us that we have to change. We have to it's a deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's like letting the Spirit overcome the flesh. That's, that's our job, to, to ask God's Spirit to dwell in us, that through His power, we can have power over the flesh. Otherwise, we don't have that power. But So if we have that, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this world, looking for the hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Isn't that interesting? He gave himself so that he can purify us from all iniquity, you know, and, and somehow, and this is probably for future uh, podcast recordings. I know we want to talk about this, but the fact that if we come to Christ, his goal is to completely remove our sin. As this scripture says, to purify us from all iniquity, so that he can make us a peculiar people. And then of this, it says, zealous of good works. So that if our hearts have been changed and we've been purified, even to begin to want that in this life, we'll have, we'll desire to do his will. That's that's the, that's the good work. And that these things are the things that happen when we're changed by God. When, when someone feels forgiven and clean, it is amazing because I've, by the grace of God, I've had an experience like that once or twice in my life. It, it's so amazing that the hope that that brings, the lack of fear that that brings, and the desire to share that with everybody around you. And so that's interesting when you say that. Um, what a great, what a great gift! And and, and you said. It's Jesus worked for us to come to Christ and remove all sin from us. And that's one of the, and I agree, we'll get into that. That's one of the great parts of the fullness of the gospel is that, you know, we don't believe that uh, someone dies and goes to hell for all eternity in flames um, based on, um, you know, certain criteria that different churches may may or may not have. But we believe that Christ's work and God's work is so magnificent that it continues on um, even in hell. <laughs> even in hell. Even in hell, it continues on, and that there's there's a group, a category of people that will refuse to ever be persuaded, and yet there's a group that will also uh, will be persuaded, even when the heartbeat stops on this side of the veil. But um, again, for another time, but what a wonderful thought that is, that God in Christ are mighty to save. Mighty, mighty to, to save. save. And, and ultimately, it comes back, our response is the response of our heart, and we haven't really define that yet and maybe we can do that today what that really yeah. means and looks like but ultimately everything comes back to our a choice we make to decide that he is king he is savior and that we are unworthy and if if we desire to have a covenant with him if we desire his spirit that that spirit works in us to change our hearts and in the end if our hearts were changed that's the work by which we're judged it's not that that work could have saved us on its own no it took a payment of infinite value but the response to that 
atonement by him is, is what we're judged by. Where did we allow that to, to change us? And, and so, you know, Titus 2 has a, has a good message about, you know, Jesus was this grace that appeared, but Titus 3 has a beautiful message too, just continuing on. Uh, Titus 3, uh, starting maybe around verse 4, um, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Now, isn't that something right there? The kindness and love of God, our Savior, towards man appeared. Well, well what appeared? Well, well, Jesus did, right? Yeah, he, yeah. He, he, he came. And, and notice how it says in verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. In other words, Jesus didn't come because, oh, well, I guess they did some good stuff and they deserve it. Maybe I'll be persuaded. I don't really want to mm. do this. No, he he decided before man sinned, you know, who will redeem man from the fall? Well, that conversation apparently happened even before man fell. You know, it was a destined that it was going to happen eventually. But this choice that, no, I'm I'm going to go, I, I, I realize I will have to uh, sacrifice my own will, right? Well, that's our response ultimately when it comes down to, hey, if we respond to grace, what does that mean? It means that we give up our, our will, our will to be our own self in, in, a, in a worldly sense, our own self in a, I just want what's in it for me. I just want to put myself first. That's ultimately why Jesus said, hey, I came to do the will of the Father. And that's what he says in the beginning of John. And and in the end, his final words on the cross is, hey, I have overcome. I have accomplished the will of the Father. Thy will is done. You know, from the beginning, Jesus demonstrated what we need to be about, and that's first realizing our will has to change. That's the old man. That's the natural man. So, so Jesus came not because of works of, that we did that made us deserve it. That's what verse five says. But according to His mercy, He saved us. So He did it because of His mercy. And so that's ultimately the the definition of grace. And so and then it includes by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Of course, that seems to imply baptism by laying out of hands and receiving the Holy Ghost, which are ordinances that we practice in the church. But there's there's more to that. The the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's not just that we um, experience those events at a moment in our life. We got baptized and we received the Holy Ghost as a gift, and some people call it confirmation. I, I kind of wish we would steer away from that. I, I really think baptism of the Holy Ghost is important to keep in our memory for this, is that it's the Holy Ghost in us that begins that change. Without the Holy Ghost in us, we can never make that change. So so that's why those who are found on God's right hand are those who are baptized and renewed. But but the Holy Ghost is the catalyst that changes us, that, that allows our, our heart of flesh to be, become a heart after God, to, to seek him. And so when it talks in Titus uh, chapter 3, verse 5, about you know the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost, that's saying, hey, by the change in your heart that, that the Holy Ghost is going to bring. He saved us by allowing our hearts to change. And so he continues, and, and I think it's just beautiful doctrine captured here in verse 6, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So by mercy he saved us, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, that being justified by his grace, or being made righteous or changed by his grace and love, that we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, so he says, hey, if we're changed, justified by his grace, if we're changed by this, we're going to have salvation. We're going to be heirs to his kingdom, and we have hope for eternal life. 
That's, that's all it comes down to, is if our hearts are changed by him, we're going to be the heirs to the kingdom, right? Because he's going to change us by his Holy Spirit. Even like in 3 Nephi uh, 4, verse 50, he refers to anyone who comes to him with a broken heart and contrite spirit, he will baptize with power, with fire and the Holy Ghost, as he did the Lamanites at the time of their conversion, who were baptized by the Holy Ghost and knew it not. It, it, it doesn't compare the Nephites, who had been kind of righteous more often than not, but the Lamanites, who had been wicked, whose hearts were changed. This is what he offers to everyone, but it can only happen with his Holy Ghost being in us. Hey, Corey, going back to that Titus 3, um, so in verse 6 it says, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Is that referring back to verse 4 that says, uh, after the kindness and love of God our Savior saved Savior toward men appeared, or is it referring to the um, according to His mercy He saved us by the uh, washing and the renewing of the Holy Ghost? Well, that's yeah, that's good question, good insight. And you know what? Um, I look at that and I think I think you're right on both. I think it's kind of both. It's by Jesus coming in by the by the renewing. Um, but that's a good thought because Jesus, the love of God. Um, I mean, we can look at the act of God coming down in the man of Jesus, but to understand it, the Holy Ghost has to get involved. Um, even if I had walked and lived with Christ, and you know, I was on the road with Him for whatever three months and spending every night by the campfire, and even that, I would see probably more about this love and wow, this is awesome. But it still has to be because even the men around Him, some of them wanted to kill Him. So it has to be this Holy Ghost, this interaction, and. And it's it's always comes back to that that very very simple thing in the gospel that we want to leave all the time and and we want to step out and do things under our own strength and it's always about the Holy Spirit within me being tied to the branch um, you know or I can do no good thing it's always about that Spirit living yeah He is the vine and we are the branches not we are the vine and the branch <laughs> and the root and the and the gardener and everything else and that big mystery that Christ says I have to go so that the Comforter can come yeah um, again yeah. but I don't I don't want to get too far off on that but but yes this Titus boy I you call it the tiny little book of Titus and we were on vacation not too long ago with my and we we're making up an a- acronym the the what was it TLB the TB lot or the tiny little Elbot or whatever. Anyway, what a succinct little book, the tiny little book of Titus yeah, that, that has something? so much in it. Um, and words, I would recommend everybody read the book of Titus. It'll only take you 10 minutes to, to go through it, but so much truth contained therein. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, it's, it's interesting that uh, what you mentioned too, though, about how Jesus said, hey, it's expedient that I go or the comforter can't come. Uh, that's in John 15. Uh, it's expedient for this John, or I'm 16 rather, John 16, 7. Uh, I tell you the truth, it's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, the comforter will be that thing that um, helps reprove the world of sin or changes the sin of the world, right? Uh, righteousness and judgment. So, but what's interesting is that. Uh, in 15, he says, I need to go so that the comforter can come. But when you look at the um, uh, same person, Jesus, sharing these words in John 14, he said, uh, If you love me, keep my commandments, 
and I will pray the Father, and he shall send you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. So it seems to be the same reference. Even the Spirit of truth, who the world can't receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. And then he says, Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Isn't that interesting? Mm. He, he, the comforter is Jesus. It's the spirit of Christ. And, and Christ is God. And, and God is the creator and the father of heaven and earth. And, and they are one. And it's the, the, the spirit of God, the, you know, the, the spirit of Christ. It's, it's all wrapped up in one. That comforter is him. The comforter is God himself. It, it's him just it's abiding with us. I love these simple mysteries that um, the more you dig into the Word of God, it's not that you're finding out, you know, all these deep hidden things, but they are hidden, but it's simplicity that's hidden. And it seems to always come back to Jesus. And it always comes back to, and you think of Jesus in just, I think, more and more all encompassing ways of not just a man, but the Son of God. And then not just the Son of God, but God Himself taking on flesh. And then, you know, also the spirit, and it's just all, um, it's all tied together. But, you know, what you just said is so true. It seems like we, we think that studying is going to bring us to uh, just deeper, complex understanding. And for, for me, in recent years, anyhow, even, even in past days, studying brings me to see simple things that were there from the beginning and, and how plain and pure and how, um, how lasting and everlasting and is this gospel message and and it's the same everywhere uh and and when we peel away the shade the the scales of our misunderstanding all these simplicities come to the surface all these basic truths that have been there all along that have been maybe uh hidden because of our own paradigms sometimes our, our misunderstandings when they come to the surface boy it's a beautiful thing it you know that's a great segue I, our goal for today was to kind of summarize the several weeks that we had on the the grace and the grace versus works, and hopefully that was beneficial to people. Hopefully, people, and myself included, see that um, a lot of times fallacies are just built on one. You know, you could even just be one man, such as we talked about Martin Luther uh, coming up with this. You know, works was absolutely just a bad word, and yet never even tying that word works to the law of Moses. And then this whole philosophy of Christianity goes on after that. And and that's just one example. How many other examples there are where we something goes askew or amiss and we base then our philosophies and our Christian um, ideas on those um, those ideas that are false. And then we develop doctrines and we uh, ways of thinking. Um, I think it was in class at church one day, Corey, you talked about this painting. Uh, so back in the, going to that again, back in the 1500s when there wasn't video and YouTube and everything, um, baptism, somebody, you know, art was where people... I'll just let you explain it about the baptism and the sprinkling and then how that became tied into. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, my wife and I were visiting in a art museum in California a few years ago and in there was a, oh, it was a beautiful book. It was basically um, a hand painted uh, Bible. Do you think about, you know, when we were children, uh, most of us probably had a children's stories, uh, you know, for kids. Well, this was a, a, thick book kind of like a gutenberg bible on about every and it was hand 
the calligraphy, you know, everything was written, I think it was in Latin or whatever, and, and it was for the priests or whatever to teach from. And it was from, I don't know, 1400s or 1500s. Uh, it predated, I think, the Gutenberg Bible. But this thing that stood out to me is about every 10th page was a, was a hand-painted illustration. And this wasn't like a photocopy or a reprint. It was, it was hand-painted. And the page it was open to in that Bible was the baptism of Christ. And, and what stood out to me in this moment was that, of course, they showed him sprinkling. Now, for the masses back then who couldn't read, I'm sure whoever was in the presence was holding up this picture saying, and here's the baptism of Christ. Well, that fascinated me, and so I started looking up in time on the Internet just the, the baptism of Christ, like artwork. And through centuries from, from that point on, like I, I don't know, it may have been the 1300s when that book was written, but I found that in every century later, different artists represented the same picture and, and, and it was Jesus standing in water with someone standing over him on a ladder or whatever, uh, sprinkling them for baptism. And I'm not really here to try to debate the merit of baptism by sprinkling or immersion, even though the word baptism means in the Greek to immerse. And obviously the symbolism of death and resurrection is, is tied in the act of going under the water and coming forth. But the, the point of this is, how most of the masses would have made the visual association with with baptism to being sprinkled. And now, historically, if that was instituted by the Catholic Church or others, you know, they had their reasons. I think in at some point in time, people worried about the health of people going into freezing streams in the wintertime, and, or if someone was ill, you know, whether they should, they should be fully immersed. In. And, and I kind of think there was even this humanitarian aspect of sprinkling where they thought, well, this is just a little safer for everyone. But the fact is, the pictures are what endured. The pictures lasted forever. You know, and great artists, you know, Da Vinci and Rembrandt, and others, they all had their depiction of Christ being baptized. None of them showed him being immersed. They all showed him being baptized. And so that image became powerful, I'm sure, in the masses of people throughout the ages, that that's what the understanding of baptism was, simply by a picture. Mm-hmm. And so in our day, uh, we have pictures. Some of them are actual pictures. Some of them are graphs. Some of them are diagrams that have been in books that we hold dear that have been passed on you know through our generations Uh, some of them are word pictures some of them are just thoughts and ideas um, passed on through sermons and testimonies but we have these pictures that endure and some of them may not be absolutely the truth or, or or truth in any way but yet we've come to associate those with truth and so when when we get back into the Word of God and look at what the Scriptures actually say, we may find out that a lot of those traditions or pictures um, just... We're very, just that. <laughs> yeah, very greatly from what, what the truth actually is. And so that kind of leads us into what I'm really excited about, and that is because we've mentioned this over and over again uh, since our podcast has started, really, uh, this change of heart. And, and we, we mention it you know, just as a sentence... Uh, talking about something else that it's it you know, all that matters is that your heart has changed your heart has changed and yet um, I don't want that phrase to become yeah. a mundane or whatever but I really want to dig into that because I believe and, and I know you do too as we've talked that that is the heart of every it's the heart of Christianity and that is Christ God coming down being among us has the power to change our heart and when we say change our heart we mean our heart can come to the point where it desires him above all else. Yeah. And that is the goal for every Christian. Cause once that takes place, 
everything is different and we have the ability to know him as he is, which is described as eternal life. And so if it takes weeks or months, I don't know, but looking at that changed heart, that process and what that means is kind of where we left off last time. We said, what must I do? Yes. Yes. Well, what must you do? You must have your heart changed. Yeah. And what does that, that, that's going to be an exciting, but I do also want to address one thing. We, we asked people to reach out to us through Facebook or email and we got some comments. One of those, I just wanted to address here, and, and it may tie in, and this may not. <clears throat> let's just kind of brainstorm here because I don't even think I, I brought this to you yet. But one of our friends uh, asked, uh, we played a clip from Tony Evans about, uh, you know, if God comes to me that day and says, why should I let you into heaven? And I'll say, because of the blood of Christ. And, you know, I think he was making a point. But we had a, a listener ask us, you know, uh, he kind of wondered about that phrase, you know, God led us into heaven. And mm-hmm. he said, does God really let us into heaven? Does God really stand there and want to keep us out of heaven if we haven't performed in a certain way? Or do we keep ourselves out of heaven? So just off the top of your head, and there may not be any right or wrong answer, but just for dialogue's sake, and he asked us to bring that up. What do you think, Corey? Do you think God's standing there um you come in, you don't come in, you know, Peter at the gates, all of that imagery we've had over the years. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. You know, there's there's so many images, like you, like you started off saying that, you know, you just wonder if, if they're formed in our mind for, if they work the work of good understanding and righteous understanding and in a correct paradigm, or if they kind of influence negatively. You know, growing up, I remember everyone made heaven sound like this boring place where you sit around playing a harp. Well, I, I don't even want to play a harp. You know, that's not, that's not my thing. You know, I'd rather play guitar or something, I guess. Right. But my, but you know, is, is that the work of Satan making people seem like, Oh, that's, that's dumb. You know, only the good die young, you know, that kind of thing. And just, right. uh, I laugh with the sinners while you can. So my, yeah, on so many levels we have these pictures, but, uh, coming back to the scriptures, what's interesting is, um, when, the writers of scripture talked about this time when we stand before God. I think it's more the latter. I don't think it's God keeping us out. Uh, talks about that, uh, you know, at the last day when men stand to be judged of him, they shall confess that he is God. These are the works uh, that uh, in Mosiah 11, uh, Alma's talking about. They'll confess, they who live without God in this world, that the judgment of his everlasting punishment is just upon them. And everyone's... In other words, admitting, "Hey, I'm getting what I deserve." You know, they're they're not challenging this, and they'll quake, tremble, and shrink beneath the glance of his all-searching eye. Um, th- there's several scriptures that just use the word shrinking and 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 the guilt. How we'll we'll want to, you know, by our own accord, we'll we would be miserable. The scriptures say to dwell in the presence of God with sin. We would be much more happy to be in hell. And so, right there, I think it implies that. God doesn't have to keep us out at all because there's no way a spirit or soul with sin on it can dwell in his presence anyhow. It would just be awful. We would feel more than out of place. I don't think there's a word in the language, human language, that can even describe that feeling. So, Which the, it brings back that C.S. Lewis quote about the door of hell being, you know, it opens from the inside and it's it's not locked. No one's no one's locked in there. People are there by choice and, and they can walk out or come to Christ if they wanted, but they've... Like you said, uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, again in Mosiah, that was, the previous scripture was from Mosiah eleven, uh, and in Mosiah one, King Benjamin's talking about this same situation, and he he talks about 
rebelling against God and obeying the evil spirit that wants us to become an enemy to God. And it says in uh, verse 81 of Mosiah chapter 1, Therefore, uh, if we've been evil, we, we list to obey the evil spirit and become an enemy to all righteousness. Therefore, the Lord has no place in that person, for he dwells not in unholy temples. Therefore, if that man repents not and remains and dies an enemy to God, the demands of divine justice does awaken his immortal soul to a lively sense of his own guilt. So, so very clearly the scripture says, hey, if we don't repent, the it wells up with us. We're, we're awakened to a sense of our own situation. It doesn't have to be God reading it off a list. Oh, you did this and you did this, and then you, we start feeling worse and worse. It's like instantly we're awakened to the sense of our own guilt. And this continues to say, which does cause him to shrink from the presence of the Lord and doth fill his breast with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire whose flames ascend up forever and ever. That unquenchable fire is what we do to ourselves by having sin, and it's the sin within us that causes the guilt, that causes us to want to shrink away from God. God isn't pushing us away or closing the door. It's like, no, we've realized we have no place with him because of that sin. That that phrase, a lively sense of your own guilt, a lively sense, that's such a word... Such a word picture. Yeah, lively <laughs> sense. It's like you just imagine that's that's all you can think about. Oh no, I'm so guilty. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like eh, I guess I may be guilty. It's like no, that's all that it just fills your mind. And we we've talked before, and not to re, be redundant, but just about the um, you know it, when there's time here, and, you know, and I can sin or I can say a crossword to my wife or whatever and hurt her feelings, but I can kind of dull my own senses or go think about something else or go work in the yard or whatever and not realize. But if I had a lively sense of how bad I had just hurt her or, you know, caused her to feel at that moment, I would instantly want to repair that. Right. If, if I'm a good guy or not. But, right. Um, so that lively sense though is, is just having all of that knowledge of God is holy and I am not yes. come pouring in and awaken you at that moment. And you wish, Boy, I would have spent my time here on this earth um, learning to desire him instead of all of the things that just fade away and right. that, that don't last. And yet I spent my time not doing that, not putting in the time and the work in my life to order it around him. You know, that that guilt uh, is something that, like you say, in our life right now, our flesh does a good job of, of diminishing of hiding it, of making it fade, the memory of sin, you know, mm. we just kind of let things go. And what's what's interesting is even more scripture from the Book of Mormon in Second Nephi 6, uh, Nephi and, and Jacob, the brothers, were, were writing, and th- there's some beautiful descriptions of this plan of God in Second Nephi 6, around verse uh 30, 31, 32, you know, the grave delivers the captive bodies and the spirits of men will be restored. And then in this moment, he says, how great the plan of our God. For on the one hand, the paradise of God must deliver up the spirits of the righteous and the grave deliver up the bodies of the righteous. So the spirits and bodies come together of people who've been in paradise. That's a good thing. The spirit and body is restored to itself again. Men become incorruptible, immortal, they are living souls, and have a perfect knowledge like us in the flesh, save it be that our knowledge shall be perfect. So on the one hand, hey, just like for good and bad, our knowledge diminishes. You know, we can learn something good and forget it. We can do something bad and kind of forget it. But all of a sudden, that knowledge becomes perfect for people who are are righteous. 
Then verse 34 uh, says, wherefore, we shall have a perfect knowledge of all of our guilt and uncleanness and our nakedness. So this is for the souls who don't repent. They'll have a perfect knowledge of, of the bad things, the guilt, the uncleanness, nakedness. Verse 35 says, the righteous shall have a perfect knowledge of their enjoyment and their righteousness, being clothed with purity, even with a robe of righteousness. And so when this moment happens, it, coming back to the original question that we started with from our friend, it's it's pretty apparent that the scripture says it's our own sin that is we're going to judge ourselves that God doesn't even have to in the sense that that is what separates us from Him because we couldn't be happy dwelling with Him, uh, but yet to have the sin washed away, which is why Jesus had to die on the cross, that creates a state where the guilt, the sin, the pain is removed, so then we can enjoy eternity forever. Without it, there's no way you can enjoy eternity locked in sin. And that's that's one of those uh, pictures, if you will, of you know the sprinkling of Christ or whatever that changed. That's one of those pictures that we've, uh, I say we, Christianity has come to embrace is that, you know, God is up there with this, um, you know, this heavy hand and, and just saying, you know, I'm either going to let you into heaven or I'm not, and then we come up with the qualities that we decide, and maybe those vary among denominations or whatever. Maybe it was you've never confessed his name, yep. so you can't come into heaven. No matter how many times you helped out your neighbor in the ditch or whatever, um, if you never said the sinner's prayer, then you know God keeps you out of heaven. And there's a variety of those. Um, those may vary along the continuum of where we want to draw the line. But as you've mentioned, Corey, you know, is God up there counting and saying, you know, you brought dinner to the widow a hundred times and your neighbor only did it 99 times and a hundred was the magic number. No, but it's all about what has transpired within you, which again brings us back to that. And, And it ultimately comes down for each of us. And this is why God can only judge. It comes down to our will and, and our will versus God's will. And when when we're confronted with situations in life and realize no two of us live the same life, some of us have harder challenges in certain areas than others, but we all have challenges. But in the end, for whatever challenges we have, will we choose God's will first? That's what it means to overcome. That's 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 the change. If God's Spirit is within us, not that we won't be tempted, and, and the Scriptures say, hey, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. That's why he could you know, sucker us. That's, that's why he could comfort us. He knows what it's like to be tempted, but... The temptation is, do we want to do our own will, or do we want to do God's will? And ultimately, that's how God can judge each one of us individually, uh, not based on the sins or the works of another, is that, no, when we had a chance, when we were confronted with situations, how did we respond? Did did we respond to do our will, or did we respond to do His will? And His will, like He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It just takes small decisions sometimes. But, But that's ultimately... What determines eternity too is is those the responses in small situations. Well, and that's ultimately the definition of faith. I, I believe my my working definition isn't. Uh, it's changed. I used to think faith was just to believe, but I think faith means to to be determined to do God's will, no matter what the situation. And if you're living in faith, that's what it is. That you in confronted in whatever situations in life, you know. If my neighbor doesn't love me, I'm going to love my neighbor anyhow. That's faith, and I'm going to do God's will, you know, and despite the circumstance. That so so that's how we move. That's how we live in faith in the grace of Christ. 
And it, and ultimately, uh, by doing those actions, you, you believe that uh, it'll always turn out for the best in the end. Even even if not this side of the veil, sometimes that faith goes on, and we never see the results on this side of the veil. But we have faith that it'll be equalized, and um, and that it'll all work for God's glory, whether on this side or, or the other side. Of right, the veil. right. And and you know, we we always hope that every chapter of our life is going to have a happy ending and they don't but it it all works out for his good and glory and if we live with that idea in mind that in the end it'll all be good that um that helps carry us through the hard times well Corey, anything else to uh, just sum up on our our talk well last i do few yeah, weeks? grace a, versus works and... I, you know there's there's probably a lot more we we can say um i know in class recently we dug down deep into some of the things historically people who presented things by grace and works I don't really want to bring that up now, at least not in this session, but I do want to mention something in the Book of Mormon that I I, I don't know if it needs to be clarified or not, but I, I think it's worthy of mentioning. In the earliest version of the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi chapter 11, uh, there's a statement that says, uh, it's uh, verse 44, 2 Nephi 11, verse 44, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved, and then it says, after all we can do. Um, I think that means takes... It deserves a little bit of attention, and and I think this is one of these scriptures, like so many, where it can't be read as a single verse. It can't be taken out of context because the context really determines so much of scriptural understanding, and especially here, um, going back to you know salvation by grace doesn't mean that oh Jesus did it all, therefore there's nothing I have to do. Um, our Jesus work you know, being infinite and our work being, as Isaiah says, filthy rags, you know, infinity plus filthy rags, well, you, you, you is still infinity. Our filthy rags don't add much to infinity. The after all we can do doesn't mean, oh, after we add a bunch of filthy rags, then we're saved by grace. Our, our works aren't the thing that brought salvation. Our works demonstrate the change in heart. But why does this verse add that? saved by grace after all we can do. Well, I was just reading this recently, and, and again, the context is important here. Um, where where the writer is coming from is he says, we've been laboring diligently to persuade our children and, and the Lamanites, our brethren, to believe in Christ, to be reconciled by God. The after all we can do is a reference to all the work that they have been doing to try to bring Christ to these people. In other words, it was saying, hey, we know that we're saved by grace. And and after all we can do trying to tell people this message, the after all we can do isn't this, hey, we have to do everything we can, and then we're saved by grace. Well, the everything we can is our heart has changed. And if our heart has changed, we become pure, we become righteous, and, and, our, and our will changes. That's, that's the thing we can hope for. But in the end, he makes up the whole difference. So if there's a all we can do, that's it. It's that our will has to change, and we have. And and if that changes, we'll become obedient. We'll, we'll want to keep the commandments. We'll want to walk in righteousness. We'll want to love our neighbor and all that. There's there's some aspect to that, but I think in the context of this too, the after all we can do was, it, it had to do with the fact that he he in the same chapter and i won't read it all they were talking about this he said notwithstanding we believe in christ we keep the law of moses we look forward for this when it's going to be fulfilled and it's for this end was the law given so he's talking about these other things they had to do they had to keep the law they had to they they were zealous in telling their neighbors but they realized that in the end the point of this was that it's all by jesus that we're saved and and these things that they were doing 
weren't just things that, oh, you got to do this and this and this and this, and then, you know, Jesus has to do this and this. This part is that we have to be born again and changed. And and that's that in the end is is it wasn't that there was nothing we had to do. It's that there was nothing we could have done. And and but Jesus says, but if your heart changes, my blood will wash away the sin, will make you clean, will bring you back, as Titus said, uh, uh, purge you of iniquity. So anyhow, I, I just think that in the end, the Book of Mormon isn't sharing a different message about okay, well, mm-hmm. salvation by grace after you've done all these other things. It's always and only been. The choice of Jesus to die for us that provided salvation. We've always in, been destined to be judged by our works, and the works represent whether our heart was changed. I like this. So, so verse forty-four basically saying that you can't you can't save yourself. I mean, we know it's by grace that we are saved. After all, we can do like after all of our trying, or it's still yeah. by grace we are saved yeah. by Christ coming down and and uh, paying the price. Yeah. And that's one of those differences that have really been brought out for me, Corey, through this discussion was, I go back to that scripture, and I think it was in Mosiah, where it uh, it talked about that, you know, Christ atones for our sins, but we drink damnation to our own soul. So there was a great price paid for my sinful nature, For but if I continue in that sin, and I continue to not uh, want to desire him and not want to seek him out, then I'm drinking damnation to my soul, he, mm-hmm. you know, and that that way, that, that price that he paid can cannot benefit me. And, right. Um, right. Boy, what a great, what a great benefit that's been for me personally to see to see that so plainly. Well, you um, know, so this brings up, I think, a, a good topic. So we talk about this change of heart, and and what does that really mean? You know, what what does that look like? I I think one of the things that helped me was to realize that um, in the days when Scripture was written, especially in the Old Testament, New Testament works. The heart in the in the minds of people uh, had a little different connotation historically. You know that uh, even Jesus says this. Uh, if if you were you know nowadays we think of the heart as being this thing kind of like you know Valentine's that means I love you. You know my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know and the heart represents love. Well in the in the days of Jesus, you know what represented love was was the bowels. You know it was it's kind of ugly to think about in a sense. But um, even Jesus says my my you know, bowels are filled with mercy, you know, and we don't think of that as a, as a loving thing, but merciful. But in the days of those people, the, the bowels were, you know, uh, the, the thing where your, your yearning and your emotion came forth, but the heart represented your mind and your attitude and your will. Okay. So, so in that context, the heart was something different. The heart was your, your life's purpose, your thought, what drives you, your inner being, the inner voice, all that was represented by the heart. And so when Alma says, hey, marvel not that all mankind must be born again, it changed from this you know, ugly, wicked person to this righteous person. It was this change of heart. In other words, our mind, our purpose, our, our desires, that's what has to change. That's, that's what a change of heart means. It's not just, well, I decided I love God. No, it means that I've decided that the purpose of my life is different now. And, and I'm different because of that. And so when, when people say, well, uh, so how do, I, how do I get to that point? Uh, I think we have some good examples. Uh, uh, one example of, of what this change of heart looks like uh, happens with, well, how does it even start? You know, if, if, if say, I don't know if my heart changed or not. Well, 
well, here's a here's the thing. Have have you done this? Have you done this? This was from Helaman chapter two when the Lamanites are have taken Nephi and Lehi, the sons of Helaman, captive, and they're in this prison and they're about to kill him. And then fire comes down. We know the story happens where the the missionaries, the good guys, are saved. But what happens to the rest of the people in there is even more profound because they're surrounded by darkness and and they don't know what to do. And someone says, well, how can we get this darkness from overshadowing us? And there's a metaphor there for our lives. You know, the darkness in our own life, the response happens by doing the same thing in our life now as as these people did then. And so Helaman 2, verse 106 and 107, um, came to pass to the Lamanites. Now, these are people in a prison who are surrounded by darkness, and, and Lehi and Nephi are surrounded by fire. And they say, what shall we do that this cloud of darkness may be removed from overshadowing us? And uh, this person, Aminadab, says to them, you must repent and cry unto the voice, even until you'll, you shall have faith in Christ, who is taught to you by Alma and Amulek and Zizram. And when you do this, the cloud of darkness shall be removed from overshadowing you. You know, isn't it interesting that that's how it's presented, that repent and cry into the voice until you have faith in Christ, that the cloud of darkness <clears throat> could be removed and overshadowing. You know, I, I don't know that I was ever really taught that growing up. I was, I was taught more that, well, the, the, the right church exists and the wrong church exists, and you just need to join the right church, and then you're good in it. And I, there's some truth to that. But did I ever personally repent and cry that the, the darkness in my life would be removed from overshadowing me so that, so that I could see Christ clearly? You know, that's a, that's a big first step. And I think with anyone, wherever we're at in life, you know, to, to, to bow down and recognize that, Christ and say, Lord, you know, would you remove the darkness of my life, and can I be filled with your light and your love? That's that's a first step, you know. That's, that's a first a, yeah. step in having the heart change. That's right? what I was going to say. That that's one of those beautiful scriptures that um, that you can hang your hat on and just you know separate, put that wherever you need to, put it in the front of your Bible or the back of your Book of Mormon or whatever. But that's when you're at your lowest point. Um, you say, what can I do? Well, here is a step, and this explains this beginning of this process, uh, even until, I love that that phrase, even until, do this. So that means that at yeah. the moment, you're not having the result that you want. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> but persevere. Hey, let's uh, let's let's um, bring this up next time. We're right at uh, 50 so minutes. So I'm really excited where this is going, Corey, this uh, change of heart. We're getting down into the meat of something I think that's important for each and every one of us. Um, you have anything else that you want to? No, well, hey, I will add this. Um, some of the scriptures that I think we're going to be sharing in the next verse, you can find in a list online. If you go to RestoreGospel.com, The Final Prophecy, uh, you'll see the link there. Uh, look under the, the first heading, you'll see this heading that says, you know, The Foundation. And in there, you'll see uh, a section says that says, so what must I do? We'll put a link. We'll put a link in the show yeah. notes. Yeah, and, and, and you'll find some of these scriptures that we're going to be sharing next time here, because I think it's a good list for everyone, wherever we're at in our walk with Christ, to uh, consider. All right, until next time, God bless. God bless.